0: This is the Church Planting Podcast, brought to you by the Broadcast Network. Broadcast exists to support, train and encourage
1: church planters. For more information about who we are or about the training that we offer, please visit our website at www.thebroadcastnetwork.org.
2: Hello everyone, welcome back to the Broadcast Podcast. My name is Tom and we've got Beth on here as well today. How are you doing, Beth? I'm good, how are you? I'm really well, thank you. Yes. Um, okay. So last week we started bringing some of the sessions from the Renewal for Revival conference, and we're going to be back in that today. We're bringing session two now, and we were joined by Rachel Gardner, and Rachel uh, is absolutely phenomenal. You'll hear this as you hear her talking, and um, she works with a lot of youth organisations, so Youthscape and the Girls Brigade. And others, and she really is uh, someone who, when she speaks about youth culture, says so much that makes sense of things that we've been seeing and thinking, but never quite had ways of uh, articulating or putting it in quite the way that Rachel does. So I found this a really incredible session, to be honest. This is one of my favourites on the whole conference. Um, Beth, what did you make of this time we had with Rachel?
0: Yeah, I'd have to say the same, to be honest. She spoke from such a place of... Um... I want to say, like, gritty wisdom in terms of she's she's in it and she's there and she's, you know, um, yeah, preaching to the young people of Blackburn and, and further afield and you could just, uh, you could tell that her wisdom came from a place of being on the ground with these people and, um, yeah, just some of the stats that she gave around um, the struggles and things that are facing our youths these days, um, it was just, yeah, it was uh, really challenging but... Um, really really insightful as well i thought
2: she was brilliant yeah, yeah absolutely um quite early on in the talk one of the the things she did she made us talk to people near us about what we owe to christian youth work and uh, i know a bit about your story you grew up in a church setting um mm. but for you as you reflect back on those formative years mm. what, what, what's your debt to youth work
0: Yeah, definitely. I think I remember um, speaking to the people next to me during this this segment and um, just saying that I think the youth group when I was a teenager was very much um, a safe haven, I'd say, almost. I think it kind of it followed a different culture to the culture of my school and the the friendship groups and the dynamics that we were dealing with as teenagers in our school and it presented a different way of doing those teenage years and a kind of an accepting space where anyone from any background could come and just uh and feel safe and uh and accepted and I think that's there's so much power in that and I owe so much to my youth leaders which was actually my sister at the time so (laughs) but yeah no I really I really valued it Mm. yeah what what was your experience Tom
2: yeah for me my story's a little bit different to yours so um I was part of a family that we were on the fringe of a church we we weren't the kind of people who go along every week but we had some loose affiliations and I went to some of the youth clubs and um, I left quite young I discovered Sunday League football and that had my heart (laughs) in a way that church didn't Um, but I remember one guy in particular uh, called Mr Elliot and he was so consistent in befriending me. Yeah, I, I know he was praying for me for years and years, even after I, I stopped coming to groups that he was running. Uh, mm. He was just really faithful in that. And um, then later on, when I was um, asking questions of my own, uh, a bit older, and seeing other Christians witnessing to me, memories of Mr. Elliot really um, were playing in my mind as, okay, mm. this is the real deal, Like what he's living out. Uh, he wasn't just... Um, saying one thing and doing another, but there was a, a power to it. And mm. looking back, I, I do wonder, those prayers that he prayed uh, for years for me um, were such a pivotal part of the story that isn't the way I often tell my story, but mm. they, they did play a really big role, I think. Mm. Um, yeah. So I, I loved how uh, Rachel was saying a shift that she's seen and that others have seen amongst um, youth culture today, she used a phrase called God positive agnostics, which Mm. I found that such a a fascinating phrase, Mm. because for years, when I've been trying to share my faith with people who don't know Jesus, I I found there's a starting place of negativity. So Mm. it's almost like people were trained into the idea of, I don't believe in God, but I think it would be a bad thing if it was true. Um, Mm. And that takes quite a bit of unpicking to show that's not the real picture but she's saying that isn't what she's seeing anymore um maybe it's because people are growing up and their parents haven't had anything to do with the church so there's just no starting point it's like jesus who, who who's, who's he i don't know anything about him mm. um what, what did you make of that bit
0: yeah i thought was um i thought it was really fascinating i think <clears throat> obviously not being a teenager anymore but i can still definitely see elements of that within my friendship circles nowadays I think um people are I think we're, we're living in a society now that is a lot more um aware of there being uh, a spiritual world or there being you know some higher power whatever they believe it might be I think they are kind of um searching for something as opposed to being like no you know I think she used the phrase like angry at atheists and I think we are moving into a different um period of time where people are kind of admitting like oh no I think there is more to life than this and they're searching for it potentially in the you know in the wrong places but there is kind of um yeah an eye-opening time of um yeah not looking at like you said um you know um god and religion in such a negative light and it being yeah god positive but still being unsure and not completely sure where that truth is um I think it's yeah I think it's really fascinating
2: yeah, absolutely. And she impacts it a little bit as well, talking about um, not, not just the banner headlines of that, but she really broke down some of the big trends that we're seeing mm. in young people today. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to bring you a bit of Rachel's talk now. And she highlighted six trends that she's seen and that others have seen in uh, the the generation that's coming through so uh, let's have a listen to what Rachel has to say and then we'll, we'll jump back on and we'll bounce around what we made of these things.
1: <laughs> it's really, really great to be among you. Um, and I've forgotten that's where the link was. I might have done a different talk had I don't remember that. <laughs> Never mind. This is the fear talk, people. This is the one where we bash the millennials, no, not at all. So I'm really excited to be with you. And um yeah, very nearby in Blackburn. So I'm a Londoner through and through, a southerner, married to a northerner, and eventually God called us both home, but not heaven quite yet to to the north so we are one of the mill towns that you referred to in Blackburn so it's really exciting to be here actually as we were worshipping a bit earlier I it's so lovely being in a space where people just sing out their own songs we're involved in a church plant on a housing estate in Blackburn and actually encouraging our people to sing is quite challenging they don't don't sing, don't really like it, don't like the sound of my voice. Um, so I'm just going for it. And I'm not sure if that's helping or not. Um, and it's lovely just being in a space where people just, there is a song in you and it just comes out. Beautiful lady, the striped jumper, you're singing was blessing me massively. And then um, as we were worshiping, I just, I, I heard the voices and I just, I've been watching probably a little bit too much Vikings, Nordic kind of dramas, but I had a sense of us being in a war room and there being like a burning brazier in the middle and your voices were the voices of sage warriors women and men who are covered in battle wounds who've got the tattoos and the scars and the wisdom of the years and that as you sing your voice carries quite a strength with it and Jesus was stood among us listening to his warriors Listening to those that are leading the troops. And it was just a very beautiful moment. So I just wanted to bring that to you because I think this is a room of leaders, and as leaders, we are flawed. We know our frailty, we know our weaknesses. Like the more responsibility we're given as leaders, the more we think, oh man, what on earth are you doing, Jesus, entrusting this to me? Like the more we have to do, the more we're like, oh, we can't do this. But it was a really beautiful picture of Jesus seeing you, how he sees you dressed dressed ready for battle, carrying the scars of the battle and the weapons, the blood on your hands, um, but gathered around this beautiful burning incense and he's loving the sound of your voice. He loves the sound of your voice, yeah. Let's talk about young people, I love young people. They are a wonder to behold, not a problem to be solved. That's Canon Chris Russell, who works with the Archbishop of Canterbury. Such a man of prayer. Wonderful, thank you, Jesus, for putting him there. Um, Canon Chris Russell, who is the advisor of youth evangelism, said the reason that we get involved in work among emerging generations is not to legitimize the faith, it's not to make Jesus relevant, he doesn't need to be made relevant, he is holy. <laughs> That's way more important than relevant. Um, and it's not to kind of boost our numbers, it's because we, there's a hunger within us to experience being part of the body of Christ with emerging generations. And so I'm gonna be talking specifically about emerging generations, but I, I want you to hear me well on this. The church that Jason and I have been asked to plant onto this housing estate in Blackburn It's called a youth resourcing church so it's a church where it's for all ages but the real focus on emerging generations real focus on young people growing up sort of post-christian in a northern housing estate in a very deprived community Um, but it's all ages and six months ago before we planted if you'd have said to me good news rachel the first people that are going to join you in this plant are 12 octogenarian women All from this estate, sassy Blackburn ladies, they are going to be your army. I'd be like, oh, I don't know, I'm planting a youth church. Now, I would say to you, look to the octogenarians, because I think Jesus, by his spirit, is doing something very, very interesting with the very elderly and the very young because actually there's a desperation at the moment in our very elderly who've buried spouses, buried children, seen this nation go through all sorts of things, facing the end of days. And there is a hunger and a desperation I'm seeing in the very elderly but I'm also seeing in the very young teenagers who are also they actually growing up in a fairly similar world if you think about wars pandemics devastation of culture and i'm seeing jesus do something really interesting between those two generations and that's definitely happening on our estate Definitely, it's the 80-something women with the 13-year-olds that can't be educated anywhere and God's doing something incredible between them. So I want to, as I speak to you about youth work, I am not, it's not code for only care about teenagers. Make sure everything is super cool. That is not what I'm talking about at all. So I want you to get that out of your heads. But why don't you turn to the person next to you and just explain to them just how incredibly cool you were as a teenager. No, turn to the person next to you. What do you owe to youth work in your own life? Or what do you owe, more than babysitting, what do you owe to an adult that grabbed hold of you when you were young and they passed on the faith to you and they believed in you? So whether it was formal youth work in a church, probably wasn't, looking at the age of us, youth work didn't exist like it does now when I was at church, professional youth work didn't exist. Um, But have a chat with the person next to you. What do you owe? to an adult investing in you when you were a teenager. Go for it, you've got about four minutes. Brilliant. Yesterday, um, our team, our core team, it's one of our um, cultural practices as a team, is every week we go out at least once if not twice as a whole team to talk to people on the streets about Jesus and just get a sense every week to our stories are not about what Jesus did in someone's life five months ago, it's about what Jesus did in someone's life yesterday. And we were beginning to chat with more students. We have about 10,000 students in Blackburn that kind of descend upon the high street at lunchtime all wearing their Bright Lanyards, all up for a chat. I'm a North Londoner where everyone's super busy. Coming to Blackburn, people have time. Teenagers have time to stand around and chat, it's awesome. So our teams are out there once a week, all of us. People that do the admin, the spiritual gift of admin, are on the streets with us. The church leaders, senior leaders, are not saying I'm gonna stay behind and do some emails. They're on the streets with us. We're a church, a family, on a mission. And it's incredible as a team standing alongside each other, sharing Jesus with people. It's really powerful to do. Yesterday I, I chatted with a lad with red hair and he was about 17 years old, looks incredibly cool. And I said to him with some of the team, we're, we're starting a, a youth alpha, a student alpha, where you can just, we can just talk about anything to with God, faith, Life, the big questions, and as I was speaking, I was thinking, this is not tracking with him. It's not tracking at all, He stood there very politely. Blackburn teenagers are completely wild and also very polite. is a beautiful combination. So just listening to me quite intently. And I said, mm, I'm petering out now. Uh, do you ever ask any of these big questions? And he put his head down and he said, all the effing time, all the time. Charles Taylor, in his brilliant book, he's a, a, Catholic, an American, a Canadian Catholic philosopher in his 90s now. He wrote a book called The Secular Age, which is a really hefty tome. I mean, put it, on, put it behind your Zoom call oh, okay. on your bookshelf, shelf, just to look terrifying. And he talks about how a secular post-Christian uh, Western age doesn't produce um, angry little adolescent atheists it produces God-positive agnostics. And that's exactly what we're seeing at the moment. In Blackburn, that's one little slice of life. We're not meeting teenagers who are saying to us, no, I don't want this. I, I know there's no God. Now we do meet some, but often it's because they've had a real pain around church, or they prayed and their granny still died. So there's some kind of trauma or some link there. But on the whole, what we're discovering is an open generation. Younger adults who are saying, I don't know if there is a God, I would like there to be a God. But they're highly suspicious of conviction, highly suspicious that, that you might know if there is or not. So both wanting there to be a God, God positive, but agnostic, but not sure. How would you ever know? So it's a really interesting space to be moving into. When I began out in youth work 20 years ago, I found that I was either speaking with young people in London, that's my background, who were either Muslim, Hindu, Christian, or atheist. (laughs) Like there weren't very many in between. Now, I think they are all in between. And what I'm finding is young people are not atheists, but they're not Christian either. There's some space in the middle, even those grown up in Muslim families, Christian families in Blackburn. It's very interesting what is happening. There's a great book by James Emery uh, White, a church pastor in the States called Meet Gen Z. And he said this, Gen Z, the emerging generations, and we haven't quite named the next generation yet. I don't think it might be Generation Alpha coming through. But Gen Z will be the most influential religious force in the West and the heart of the missional challenge facing the church today so what i love about the fact that at this conference about renewal and revival you're you're thinking about youth ministry and you're thinking about young people not because you're thinking well what do we do with that crazy bunch that are going through puberty until they get to the other side and then we can slot them into what's currently working for the now 30 year olds you're sat here saying what does this incredible generation tell us about where jesus is going to be leading and building his church what What are they going to be showing us about how the gospel connects with emerging generations? And I am now in my 40s, so I'm saying this to myself too. But if in your core team of leaders or the people that you're listening to, you don't have people under the age of 30 feeding into that, you'll be missing a real line of insight and wisdom. So just as you get older, as we all get older, just keep making sure you're listening to a range of voices, voices plus the over 80-year-olds as well. So I work for Youthscape, and we have a centre of research headed up by Dr Lucy Shuka. Um, And uh, over the last year, she and her team have looked at the key journals and reports over the last 10 years about trends in young people. What can we say about this generation? Not that it's just anecdotal when they're all on their phones or they're all like this, but what are the trends that kind of have evidence behind it that's backed up across the board? And so I'm gonna bring you six big trends and hashtag not all young people. Mm -hmm. So we're not here saying, ah, I've got a real life 13 year old out here. This is gonna be true for everything for that person's life. That might not be the case. But it's important to remember that trends are both global and local. So young people are being influenced by these big things I'm going to talk about and they're also going to be influencing it in a local setting. So even if as I share these things, they don't all track with you and with the young people that you know, that's okay, that's okay. So here we go, are you ready for this? Number one, unsurprisingly, They are known as Generation Online. So now, all the journals, all the reports, all the surveys are telling us that young people are spending more time online than face-to-face. And so we need to be dropping any language that talks about online time, face-to-face. Real community is face-to-face and the fake is online. That is not how this generation are experiencing community. It It makes us ask big questions about embodied faith, about embodied community, about being together, physically together. But it also means that we can innovate some really interesting space online, asking young people, how do they live an embodied whole life? a whole discipleship in these new spaces. I'm going to rattle through these really quickly because I want you guys discussing some of these. Second, they're referred to as generation sensible. Actually, we are seeing across the board, less atypical risky teenage behaviors, less smoking, Less drinking alcohol, less drugs, less crime, less sexual activity. And we can trace the sexual activity to the birth of Instagram. So I remember 20 years ago, for 15 to 20 years ago, being sat on um, a board at Westminster. I was um, on their um, teenage pregnancy prevention team. And I was there sort of representing faith in the UK. I <laughs> don't know what I was doing, really. But, um, and the big conversation, the big concern 20 years ago within the church and in wider society was unplanned teenage pregnancies. We had the highest rate in Western Europe. We had the highest rate of sexually transmitted infections there was huge concern about consent and about young people's sexual activity and then instagram happened and if you look at any honestly get get the local stats out from your local nhs if you look at any grid you will see that when instagram was born teenage pregnancies went down but what happened porn hub happened and so what we have now is a generation of young people who might be experiencing less physical sexual activity but oh my goodness are they experiencing the most traumatic online digital sexual content and we refer to it as pornographies not pornography because the the vast expanse of what people could be accessing is so vast I remember years ago uh, when when I was first became aware of Pornhub and young people sort of showing little films to each other and we were working out what do we do about this and we did a survey of 2,000 teenagers and we asked them to, to name just to give like very basic details of the last three little film clips on porn that they'd seen online porn and the most popular one that they'd all seen was racist sort of misogynistic attack and abuse and one was sex with an animal and this was 10 11 12 year old young people so suddenly we're in a new world aren't we (laughs) the concerns have changed the world that we're preparing young people for has radically changed they're called generation anxious generation anxious there's lower life satisfaction heartbreaking more mental health challenges particularly coming out of lockdowns and they're also highly cautious around their speech and behavior we might not necessarily pick that up but they are, especially online, fearing they'll be judged in a very public way and that that judgment will stick for a very long time. They're also called generation uncertain, putting off growing up, staying at home, leaving home later, less control over their future. They're also referred to as generation non Religious, the largest growing group in global youth culture are young people that tick the non bracket. Are you this religion, this religion, this religion, or non? They call it the rise of the nuns, And I'm really looking forward to the rise of the nuns because I think that's going to be part of the renewal and revival that will happen in this country. But there's also, we're seeing a loss in spiritual language. Talk to young people about grace, redemption, sin, forgiveness, how do, you, how do they access those sorts of words? A loss of kind of words to speak theologically about God. So how are we helping them speak about these beautiful, big things that are about so much about our faith for a generation who are losing that kind of spiritual language? And I was thinking the other day, I was trying to explain, I was trying to explain to a young person about forgiveness and redemption and I said, it's like cancel culture, isn't it? Where you say the wrong thing and you're cancelled and you're rejected and you're stuck in the stocks and everyone's looking at you and you have no idea how long you'll like be in the stocks for that kind of idea. I so, said, but in the kingdom of God you're never cancelled. You're never cancelled. So the faith, so the faith that you are growing in, that you are afraid if you talk about it, that you will be cancelled. It's the very faith that that says to your friends, you will never be cancelled. Whoa, young people are carrying around, those that know and love Jesus, are carrying in them an anxiety that if they share Jesus, they'll be cancelled. But they're also carrying the absolute answer to cancel culture. I'm sharing this with you because I'm introducing you to the one person who will never cancel you and who will cancel in your life all the stuff that is hurt and destroyed and beautiful stuff really interesting. But how do we find language to connect this generation with these big concepts? And then lastly, generation justice or generation judgment. This is a generation whose consciousness has been shaped by the big global justice movements like Black Lives Matter. Greta Thunberg's climate activism. And their activism comes with much harsher judgments against themselves, oh, I need to be like this, I need to be more like that, and against each other's. There's a sense they won't be forgiven easily in a wider social context of places like school. So there's a sense in which for many for this generation, they're aware of all these big social injustices, the intersection, of injustices they're aware of how sin works on a global scale of oppression of pain of abuse but they're also experiencing life locally in a school that is harshly judgmental more so than when you and i were ever at school and that is a tough balance to make isn't it that is a hard thing for them to carry so why don't you turn to the person next to you and just where's your head at with that does that resonate with you What else would you want to add into that mix? What other kind of labels, not to put on young people, but other things you're like, those are big narratives that are kind of marking out this generation as slightly different to other generations. Go, you've got about four minutes again to chat with the person next to you.
2: So the six things that Rachel picked out there, just to summarise then, generation online, generation sensible, generation anxious, generation uncertain, generation non-religious and generation justice or judgment. Um, Now Beth, I'm really interested to hear your perspective on this because I know in your ministry you're at a site here at CCM that has a lot of young people, a lot Mm -hmm. of um, students coming through. Um, Out of those six things, are there things that particularly struck a chord and resonate with the experience you've had and the people you're working with?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think um, something that she touched on which really struck me was the need for a lot of young people to be on their phones and that that's yeah. such a normal part of their reality now that um, I think she spoke about before you come into the youth group okay you know tie up your loose ends do what you need to do that's fine sort out your phone before you come in because um, I think so much I definitely the culture I was brought up in it was you know well, we didn't have phones when we were at the table, but like, if if you did bring your phone to the table, we were it was we were shunned, and you know, if you were on your phone whilst talking to someone, it was incredibly rude, and there was yeah this element of it was just it's just being plain rude. is, now I think because we're you know um, interacting with like a digital like generation that have grown up with it being so part of their everyday lives there is that kind of reliance and addiction and and we do kind of we you know being like oh just stop doing that that just doesn't work or that's just rude that's you know it's we're not being aware of um yeah the the scenario and we're not really treating these individuals with respect either if we're just you know claiming them as as rude so i think um that really struck me and and how do we be respectful to a generation that that relies so heavily on being connected like so connected um digitally at the moment i think that was something that really stood out for me what
2: about you? Yeah, yeah. I think at that point, it, it raises some big questions, doesn't it, about ministry and mm-hmm. um, battered around, obviously, with lockdown, online church. Uh, yeah. I think we all thought that young people would fly with it and older people would struggle. And um, the opposite seemed to be true. I, mm-hmm. I don't think, particularly amongst the young, Zoom really worked for people. Um, so what does it look like to, to do church in a way that honours the digital revolution that's happened that honors the way younger people they they do live a lot online and Mm. that's not a second rate existence but nor is it the fully embodied experience that people crave um Mm. i'm not sure what the answers are but i i i I feel like um the questions that rachel asked were really good ones um Mm. there's a few of these that really jumped out at me um one of them is that, that second point she made about a generation sensible. And mm. it's such a fascinating thing because young people have a reputation as being off the rails. And it's a trendy thing for older people to do is to is to shoot down and stand down on those coming after them. Um, but all the stats that she was giving about um, – lower rates of teenage pregnancies and uh, different things that used to be bigger that have become less that's such an interesting thing to think about Um, why do you think that is have you any thoughts on what might be going on and behind this drive to much more sensible um, unrisky ways of living
0: yeah, I think she she linked it with the rise of Instagram, didn't she? She did, and, yeah. Um, which I thought was really fascinating, and um, yeah, I, I I mean I don't have I don't have any answers really for you, Tom, but <laughs> I wonder if there is almost because there's so much of um, with social media, we are logging the whole of our lives, where there's this kind of like daily log mm. and almost accountability as to what you're doing or what you're not doing, and I wonder if there's almost with this generation of being so transparent, but also very hidden in you know, um, their everyday lives because they, they choose what image that they wanna, what, what the world wants to see. And I wonder with this kind of filtering of uh, what they're putting out there, it is making them question and assess all of their motives and activities. And, and maybe it is kind of causing them to be more wary of like, oh, okay, because um, I'm wanting to post everything I do online, maybe I won't do this, this and that because I don't want to have to post, I don't want that to be seen, I don't want that to be posted, I don't want someone else to be videoing me doing that, do you know what I mean? So I think, I wonder if there is almost this kind of accidental accountability almost within Mm -hmm. like the um, excessive posting on social media, I'm not sure that's, um, yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that, that does strike a chord with me, I remember growing up in late 90s early 2000s social media wasn't a thing and mm. I had a group of mates and we we'd do stuff and we'd try stuff and if it didn't work then it didn't work and we got laughed at a bit but mm. it was no big deal I remember one time we we're at this um like youth club and it was really the first time any of us had done dancing to music it was just the, a new thing but you just have a go at it and mm. sometimes you try some stuff and you make a fool of yourself and I, I remember I did that and mm. people gave me a bit of stick for an hour and then next week one of my mates would try something and yeah would give him a bit of stick <laughs> yeah but I think if that was now and me trying something not quite working looking a bit silly mm. if the consequence of that wasn't six of my mates uh bantering with me for a bit but was the the whole school see it because it's just got an Instagram and it's going to get mm. brought up and it's going to be something that hangs over me Mm. I think I'd just be a lot less likely to try it and yeah. to see if this is the cost of something not being perfect first time, then I'll just be risk averse mm. and not step out, um, mm. which probably does link into these different behaviours mm. um, and probably a bit of vanity as well, isn't it? Like mm. um, if we're thinking Instagram is the um, source of this, then well, it's the photo that looks good, isn't it? So it's having mm. the, the gym-honed body. And mm. if drinking or eating certain things or doing stuff distorts the image that you present of yourself, then mm. perhaps it's pivoting to those kind of behaviours instead. Um, yeah,
0: definitely.
2: Mm. And then just like one more that stood out for me was the, um, the last one about a justice generation. Um, mm. The number of times in the last six months I've heard someone talk about something and use the phrase it's a justice issue. I don't know if you've heard that come up.
0: Yeah.
2: It seems like everything is a justice (laughs) issue these days.
0: I think I might have said it.
2: (laughs) 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 Probably. Which is right. It's not to say, well, younger people are into justice and that's a bad thing. God's into justice. Um, And I think the church hasn't always been great at seeing these things. I think we... We talk about justice on quite a narrow range of issues that are Mm. our comfortable issues. And then there's a lot of things where where justice does play in that to me, when Rachel said that, I thought, wow, what an opportunity for the church because we've Mm. got a God of justice, we've got a narrative of justice, and we've got people who see the world through the lenses of justice. And if Mm. if we could hone our teaching to show people why the biblical story is the fulfillment of this longing that they've got, then wow that would do something really powerful. Yeah
0: definitely. Mm
2: -hmm. So from here Rachel then uh, went on to have a look at what's happened with this generation because a lot of people as I think we all know have been leaving the church at a young Mm -hmm. age and she highlighted three particular ages that people leave at 11, uh, 14, and 18 and then started thinking about what some of the reasons for that are so let's jump back into rachel's talk a bit let's hear what what she had to say about this and then we'll reflect the back UK, on that
1: they could find who are first generation christians there'll lots of reasons why this was difficult and it's not the only ones there are but they found nine now that doesn't mean there are only nine young people in the uk who have become christians as teenagers but it just kind of gives a little insight into how few there are and how serious this is. I don't know if you follow stuff in the church times, but there was an article recent, written recently that said in the next 30 to 40 years, we will see the death of some major denominations and older denominations based on trajectory of decline. And where we'll see growth will be the new church movements or the new movements within older uh, denominations. And uh, one of the most trusted voices when it comes to church statistics is Professor David Voaz. And he says this, to borrow the terminology of radioactive decay, institutional religion, which is like a uh, horrible phrase, but basically the church in Britain now has a half life of one generation. To put it another way, we're losing 50% of young people. We already have in churches between the ages of 11 and 18. So if we have 10 young people now uh, and they're age 11, according to David Voaz, we will have the average of five left by the time they reach 18. And this article in the Church Times was saying it's because the average Christian is not contagious enough in their faith. The R number. We now know what that means, don't we, thanks to a COVID. But the R number is not big enough. It's not above one. And I bring that to you, not because I want to be negative, I've not changed my game since when I spoke at Catalyst, but because it's serious. It's really serious. And again, we're not motivated by fear or a desire to legitimise the faith. Oh look, Jesus must be real, we have young people in our church. But it's because we have a deep longing to see Jesus build his church. And also because we know actually that many of these renewal movements that you spoke of so brilliantly earlier often had teenagers and young people at the very heart of it. So Jesus is building his church. I wonder what he's going to do. I wonder what he's going to do. And where you and I are going to be asked to spot what's happening on the fringes and just add fire there. There are three danger zones. We know that young people leave uh, church, leave faith, they're not the same thing, I recognise that, at three particular ages, three danger zones. Three ages are age 11, age 14 and age 18. Age 11 is because at age 7 they decided to check out but they weren't allowed to not come till they were 11. Age 14, because that's year nine, and year nines are just off the scale. They're my favorite. I mean, I think true youth workers are those that love year nines. (laughs) I love year nines. And age 18, because for many who are maybe moving on to work or to university, that provides an opportunity to leave or not to be plugged into a church. So what's going on? So here's four thoughts for you, then I'm gonna bring you some insights of good news. Don't panic. So there's a wonderful um, organisation in the States called the Barna Research Organisation, headed up by David Kinnaman. And he's written a brilliant book called Exiles in Babylon, which is an excellent book about how to build resilient faith in young people. And uh, this is drawn from his research. But he asks, what's going on? Why are we struggling to connect with emerging generations in significant numbers? And there are bright spots. And you might well be leading a church where there are young people. But just maybe ask yourself, how many of them come unaccompanied from parents? Is a good question, isn't it? But it, the picture is pretty bleak. And, and Barnes says, what is going on? And he argues, David Kinnaman argues, it's a failure of spiritual formation. It's not a failure primarily of not enough resources in youth ministry, although that is an issue, I repeat, that is an issue. If you believe in something, fund it, get some resource behind it, get a budget line. But it's not primarily about not having the cool stuff or the 19-year-old youth worker who's amazing with young people, it's a failure of spiritual formation. He argues that often our work with children and young people in churches is not an agent of genuine transformation and commitment. Which raises some big questions, doesn't it? What's Going on, so these are th- four thoughts, and they're really provocative. They're really provocative, because he did a huge bit of research of 25,000 young adults in the states. That is different to the UK. I recognise that, but they interviewed 25,000 young adults in their early 20s who left church as teenagers at one of these three ages: 11, 14, and 18. And they did research. I asked them, "Why did you leave?" I think I may have lost power. Never mind. It's okay. We'll keep going. Um, I'll speak a bit louder. So the four things. Number one, one of the fourth reasons, one of the reasons that these young adults gave was that they felt that their church was overprotective, that saw the world as evil and wanting to grab hold of them, and being involved in culture was an anathema, rather than seeing God's world as a place to be explored, to be curious about. What does it mean to engage in TikTok and to share your faith on TikTok? What does it mean to explore your, your passion for fashion and do that in a way that has vastly different values and is Jesus-centered? So where young people felt the church was saying to them, no, don't do that! Don't go there! Don't do this! Don't do this. Stop! Stop! That actually these young adults, as they reached adulthood, were like, this faith has not prepared me for a real life. The second one, shallow shallow. These young adults felt that their experience in church was they'd been fed a steady diet of easy platitudes, proof texting and formulaic slogans and they didn't, they weren't helped to see how their faith connects to every facet of life and how their passions, their gifts and their abilities could be used for God's glory. They talk a lot about in their church they talked about God, but they didn't really experience God. And they didn't know how to experience God in their everyday life at university in the school corridor. The third one, I mean, stuff that you guys know, I realise that, but the third one, closed. This is a hard one for us to get our heads around. I hold to a historic biblical view of gender and sexuality and I realize there are so many huge debates raging in my denomination the Church of England and across the church right now and I'm constantly wrestling how do I help and pastor and care for young people who will have completely different views to me on these issues and I've also noticed I wrote a book recently called The Sex Thing and I did some research for the book of of Christian young adults who self-identify as Christians And what I found with it was that the more the young person loved their church and really invested in their church, the more they believe that their church thinks the same thing about them, about LGBTQ plus relationships. It's really interesting. And when I asked these young people, do you mind what your church thinks about LGBTQ plus relationships and people? And do you agree with them? Do you not agree? They were really agnostic. They didn't know whether it mattered that they agreed with what their church thought or not, which is an interesting question. But what the main thing that came across was they had no idea what their church thinks about LGBTQ plus people and LGBTQ plus relationships. And for some of them, they thought the silence meant that probably their church hates gay and non-binary conforming people, or they're fully supporting. There was very little in the middle. So I just chucked that out there. Because I think, here's my little provocative thought. I think on these big topics, a silent church is a neglectful church. Because silence doesn't raise wholehearted disciples, it raises synchronistic Christians or hypocritical Christians. So, either Christians who don't look any different to culture or Christians that are so afraid of difference that the only way they can deal with it is by hating and othering and saying well I I will only hang out with Christians that think the same as me and I, I can't, I can't tolerate anyone that is different. So we need to be talking about this, we need to be finding ways to open up safe, kind conversations with compassion, with real theological thinking and good language and with restraint because anything that's not done with love is not of God. So I think I just took that out there for us to be thinking about another time. That's for another conference, another time, isn't it? But, but closed. So closed. Christianity's claim to exclusivity is a hard sell for this generation. It's a really hard sell. Simply because of how this generation has been shaped by a culture that esteems open mindedness and tolerance and acceptance. And they see this along justice lines. And then the fourth one is doubtless. So for these young adults that walked away from faith or church, sometimes it was both, they felt the church wasn't a safe place, that they could express their doubts or admit that their faith doesn't always make sense. And many felt the church's response to their doubt was trivial or fact-focused, as if people could be talked out of doubting, rather than saying, do you know what? The fact that you're wrestling on the rock is brilliant. We're all wrestling on the rock here. We're all wrestling on the rock. Now, I see the shining eyes in your faces, and I know that you're behind me saying, yeah, that's not where we want to be. That's not where we want to be. But I want to encourage you as the leaders to lean into this more to lean into this for this generation.
2: Yeah, so I'm absolutely classic of um, the first of those ages that Rachel mentioned. So I, I left church when I was 11. Uh, I didn't come back till I was 19. Um, mm. uh, what about you? Like When you reflect back on your teenage years or your younger years, was, was there one of those ages that particularly you started asking questions or wavering a bit, or um, it was, was that not your experience?
0: Yeah, I think maybe when I was around about 11, I think, uh, 11 or 12, I just struggled. I was in a very small church plant and uh, there was no one my age other than my brother. Um, And I think uh, church was this kind of bit of a chore that I had to go and do because my dad led it and I'd go and I'd have to look after the five-year-olds and (laughs) I just didn't really understand why I was having to go or didn't really see the drive for myself and I think... um, Yeah, I think it did make me question. I think, actually, if I hadn't have had my parents kind of ingraining into me, like, no, we go, this is what we do, you know, then I think I, if I had have been up to me at age 11, I probably wouldn't have, I would have um, strayed away, but the decision wasn't in my hands, (laughs) which I'm very grateful now for. But, um, yeah, yeah, I think probably it was that kind of entering into those teenage years of where I felt like, oh, I should have a bit more autonomy over my life because I'm now in secondary school and this is, you know... um, but actually, I'm very grateful that my parents were, um, yeah, kind of, t- they took the reins there and, uh, and that
2: it was, yeah. Yeah. It does show the power <laughs> of Christian parenting, doesn't it? And um, As a parent myself, that's an encouraging and provocative <laughs> thing that uh, it can make such a big difference. So what, what did you make of these four things then? So from this survey that Rachel highlighted, there was um, a few things that people saw the church as being. She mentioned overprotective, Uh, she mentioned shallow and she mentioned closed and she mentioned doubtless. Um, Mm. Anything from that stand out to you?
0: Yeah, I think, um, well, I think all of them really, um, they almost feel like a breakdown of communication between the church and the young people. Um, I think kind of it, it sounds like for a lot of these young people, they weren't feeling like they were being directly um spoken to on their level you know what they uh what they were needing to hear at that time it sounds almost like they were being generalized into a a church setting without having the yeah the input that they would have needed I feel like yeah too closed you know that kind of lack of communication and too shallow it's like you know not going to the depth that maybe those those teenagers needed as well and I just guess it shows the importance of like good youth work with um i think i remember rachel saying something about how like imperative it is that leadership teams have people you know in their in their 20s basically on their leadership team because you need to know what the generations that are emerging and the generations that are closest to you know the, the teenage ones um are going through and how different it is you know when yeah. the 50 year old pastor when he was a teenager how different society is now to compared to where when he was and um just that yeah constant stream of communicating and understanding um, the society that they're growing up in. I think otherwise these will be symptoms of of that miscommunication, I think, really. For me, that's what kind of stood out. What about for you?
2: Yeah, yeah. just reflecting on what you said, Um, I I think you're absolutely right. A lot of pastors and leaders think that they're young, um, (laughs) uh, even when they're not, because you get brought onto a team and someone older than you has brought you through. Mm. And so you get to be the youth voice on the team. Mm. And then 20 years later, you don't still get to be the youth voice on the team. <laughs> um, it's always looking at who you're bringing through after you. And uh, mm. I know Rachel said people in their 20s, and she's right. I'd, I'd push it further. I think you need people mm. people in their early 20s. You need teenagers, and you need to be hearing uh, on the ground Um what's happening mm. but i think for, for me i was really struck by something she said when she was talking about the church seen as closed and she had this phrase a silent church is a neglectful church and mm. um and if we're silent about issues and um she had in mind things like um lgbtq plus and mm. uh there, there are other areas uh, along those lines where i think church has been really silent about it and Often I, I think the reason we've been silent is because we see it being addressed really badly in some mm. Christian circles and other people have seen it addressed badly. And so we're I think we're quite fearful that if we bring it up at all, there's so much baggage around it and people think we'll say think we're saying things that we we're, we're not saying that we have silenced ourselves on it and mm. uh, she said silence doesn't raise wholehearted disciples it raises synchronistic christians and mm. um if we're raising young people who basically they have a little bit of faith sprinkled in but they believe the same as everybody else in the world then aren't we just going to end up with people similar that sprinkling of faith is a bit unnecessary like where where i find my narrative and identity is is where the world is um, so it's a provocative thought. I, I don't yeah. fully I don't fully know where we go, how we talk about it in ways that avoid the baggage, but it's certainly got my mind thinking that we've been too silent and we, we need mm. better better ways of engaging conversations. Um, yeah. and linking into that doubt point as well and the shallowness, they all they all link together, I guess. We're we're afraid of conversations, we're afraid of questions, we're afraid mm. of um of people coming up against what the bible says and Mm. being ready to to be brave in having the the conversations and the formation stuff Mm. Uh, yeah i i found it stirring and provocative and uh and hopefully as i process it more we'll start to figure out what to do with it but Mm.
0: yeah
2: it was a big big one
0: yeah definitely i think um so much as well of your teenage years, you are you're searching out who you want to be You're you know, forming your um, ideas and opinions on things. And you're looking to yeah, media, your environment, your friends around you to, to find out what they think. And if the church is actually silent on what we think about those things, yeah. then they're going to be like, you know, OK, well, the church doesn't have any opinion on it. So I don't. Yes. Yeah, they're not. How are we feeding them? You know, if, if we get being silent. So um, yeah, I think it is really important. Yeah
2: absolutely and it was interesting that rachel said most young people particularly those who love their church assume that their church agrees with what they already think mm, um yeah. and that's what will happen isn't it if mm. if we don't um if we don't explain stuff well then that's a, a blank canvas that people will fill mm. in with whatever whatever they want to um, yeah yeah so I, I thought this was just such a a, a good session and um really helped get a, an understanding of what's going on. And if we want to see renewal, if we want to see God moving, then again, looking at history, God's work in the young. Bob Roberts said God movements start with young people. And mm. I believe that's true. And if, we, if we're if we going to engage this generation, then there, there's a whole raft of stuff that up to this point, we've only just been dipping our toes in the water mm. and Yeah, I I think just reflecting on it more. um, We'll never get it perfect because none of us are perfect. But with God's help, I I think going after young people and seeing this generation reached could be the turning of the tide for for the whole church and and the culture. Yeah, definitely. Um, So we're going to be back again next week with more from Rachel. Rachel did a a second session, and this one was more of a – a Bible preach than a, a cultural analysis about uh, sharing our faith, being wilder and bolder in our evangelism. So, uh, next week we'll be back with that one. Um, but we hope you have a, a great week, everyone. And yeah, see you next time.